Thank you, Albert and worship team for leading us in those songs. Especially, I appreciate uh, the hymns this morning. Uh, <clears throat> it's really cool about hymns is generally when we sing hymns, there's, even as Albert brought it to our attention, there are stories behind the writing of various hymns. If you imagine all the songs that we sing today, all their modern choruses, uh, we generally know very few stories about how those songs were written, why they were written. Uh, but the stories matter. The stories give color to uh, the songs that we sing, even because we, it matters to us of the, the integrity of the songwriters' lives. Because we want to know the words that they are proclaiming in song, are those the words that they live out in life? And that's kind of just, as I was reflecting upon that, that's our theme this morning. That faith not only is just writes and, and speaks about the word, but faith hears and does the words. We live out the word. And that's kind of our uh, passage this morning. So if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. And we study, we continue our study through the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Let's read the word of God. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can read it. Lord, we ask, though, that your spirit would teach us your word this morning. And give us understanding, not only as we hear your word, Father, as those who profess faith in Christ, Father, enable us to be doers of your word so that we would demonstrate to the world that we are your disciples. This we ask, Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Recently, uh, some of our, many of our brothers had a chance to go down to the Shepherds Conference. And I, I, you know, I didn't get to go with them this year. But in previous years, I've gone as well. And, and one of the kind of odd little exchanges that will take place at a, at a Shepherds Conference is, uh, you know, this is a Shepherds Conference. So it's basically a conference for pastors, uh, church leaders. And so eventually, you know, you kind of strike up conversations with people you meet. You sit by them. You, you talk with them. And so you ask them, you know, after the introductory, like, hi, how are you? What's your name? My name is so-and-so, et cetera. Then you ask them inevitably, oh, oh, where are you a pastor at? You know, that's kind of, at least that's what I, we used to ask a lot when, we were in the, when the Shepherds Conference was a lot smaller. And then sometimes, usually they'll tell you, oh, I'm pastoring here, I'm pastoring there. And that's the ex expected answer. But once in a while, someone will say, well, oh, I'm not, I'm not pastoring anywhere. Oh, so then we ask, oh, oh, you're a lay leader then, maybe a leader in the church. Well, no, no, I'm not. So you must be a seminary student then, or uh, maybe you want to be a shepherd. And then once in a blue moon, you get this kind of answer, no, no, I'm, I just like to come and hear the word of God preached. I'm like, now, it's okay, you know, if they go to shepherd's conference just to hear the word of God preached, but I share that story, and hopefully you get, the, you get the idea that that's kind of odd, right? It's odd. You go to a shepherd's conference, a pastor's conference, and you have, you're not a leader. You're not a church leader. You have no desire to be a leader of the church even. That is like kind of odd. It's like going to a doctor's conference and have no desire to be a doctor, right? It's like, well, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Oh, I just want to learn about human anatomy. You know, go read a book. You know, no. But, you know, get what I mean? Now, that's just odd, it's, but it's not wrong. It's not sinful. 
But I tell you what is odd and what is sinful is when professing Christians attend church weekly, hearing God's word, because they like to hear God's word, but then they have no desire to practice it. That's not only odd, but according to God's word, it's, it's sin. We're going to look at this morning at this passage, which teaches us that faith not only hears God's word, but does God's word. Now, having said this, we should all admit that we're susceptible to this. That before we say, oh, yeah, oh, oh, good, this is what brother so-and-so really needs to hear this morning. This is what we need to hear this morning. This is what I need to hear. This is what you need to hear. We can all, at times, be hearers of the word, but not doers. We can hear God's word on a Sunday morning, and just as we're hearing God's word now, we walk out these doors one hour later after a really good lunch. What was that message on? Oh, well, you know, I'm, I was blessed anyways. It was really good. I like that illustration that you used. You know, it is too easy for us, especially as a, a, you know, a church that weekly comes to hear God's word, to not, to hear him, to hear it and listen to the word, but not to put into practice. And this is, uh, and after a while it becomes almost okay, but this is not okay. This is not what honors God. For faith, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that which hears and does the word. This morning as we look to James chapter 1 verse 19-27, we remember the theme of the book of James. That James is about faith that works. And we've already looked at how faith manifests in the midst of trials in verses 2 through 18. Today's passage, really, it's, it's, a, it's a very rich passage. Even as we read it, you probably noticed, oh, these are, these are, that's a great verse. I've memorized that verse before. Oh, that's a great verse. And it, there's a passage that this passage seems to cover many different subjects. But it all has this one underlying theme. And that is that faith works in our response to God's word. That when we hear God's word, genuine faith in Christ is going to manifest in a certain way in how we respond to God's word. And as we'll look today, just as a simple outline for us, three responses to the word that characterize a believer in Christ. One who has faith in Christ. One who is a doer of the word. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. Uh, pretty, I think, uh, hopefully uh, it will encourage us uh, to be men and women of faith who hear and do the word. All right, let's take a look at this passage then. Point number one, the first, uh, first point uh, that the passage makes is that a believer in Christ accepts the word. Accepts the word. We receive the word of God. Now throughout this letter, uh, the beginning of every new section, that James, whenever there's a new section, it's often marked by the when James addresses the readers with the title brethren. He'll say, brethren, my beloved brethren, my brethren. And then follow alongside with an imperative, a command. And we notice this, this book is full of commands. That's why we like it so much. Because it's full of instructions for how we ought to live, what we ought to do. And that's exactly how verse 19 starts here. And in verse 19 to 20, we, we see really, if we could say, we could say the why of, why of, of accepting the word. Why we need to accept the word. Verse 19, this you know. Actually, uh, I think the translation ought to be, it can be translated as this you know. But it can also be translated as know this. I think some of you have uh, ESV translation. That's tra and New King James, NIV. All translated as command, know this. It's consistent with James' methodology. Know this, my brethren. He's introducing a new section. This is something you, you need to be aware of, brothers and sisters. This is something that it's easy to, 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 to kind of forget. But know this, and, he's, and his command to know this is followed by three short, brief commands, and then an explanation. Know this, know this, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. <clears throat> These commands, you notice, are for everyone, says everyone, but everyone must be quick to hear, etc. It's for every believer in Christ. It's for every brethren. This verse, uh, be quick to this particular phrase, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, is a verse that's very common if you've ever had gone through premarital counseling uh, with me. As, uh, we often will cover this verse when we talk about communication in marriage. But this verse is not just about communication in marriage. This verse 
is about every situation when a believer interacts with another person. If we consider particularly the preceding context of this passage, uh, that is the nature of trials and temptations, that we're really, that James is intending this, these set of commands to be applied particularly in the situation when we find ourselves in trials with, with respect to other people. You see, one of the more common trials that you and I face are when we have conflicts or interpersonal conflicts with others, right? With other people. It's with my boss. It's with my spouse. It's with my family and friends, my coworkers, my classmates, my teacher, my neighbor, even my church members or my fellow church leaders. For, and oftentimes when we have these conflicts, and it's because of our sin nature, for various reasons, our inter- interactions will lead to not only conflict, but it leads to frustration. It leads to anger. And just think about what caused you the most frustration in life. Is it not generally the per- interpersonal relationships with others? And this seems to be, at least as we read the rest of James, one of the various trials that his readers were facing. James maybe knew a particular situation, but since he's writing to a, a great swath of readers, you know, all of Jewish believers all across uh, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the Mediterranean world, it's probably likely that James, as in a pastoral wisdom, understands that this is a trial that is simply common among men. This is just one of those temptations. This is part of being living in a fallen world, being human. And so he's writing to these readers and addressing a particular situation where they find themselves having interpersonal conflict. Later on, James chapter 4, verse 1 to 4, he writes about all the quarrels and conflicts among them. In chapter 4, verse 11, he instructs them to not speak against one another, not to judge one another. In chapter 5, verse 9, he says, don't complain against one another. James is aware for these, that among believers that there are oftentimes trials where we have interpersonal conflicts. And you probably have interpersonal conflicts with someone, even now. I know I have interpersonal conflicts as well. But James gives three, three brief instructions, three pastoral counsel, wisdom, to those of us that face interpersonal conflict. And he first of all, he says, be quick to hear. He gives uh, three wise commands. Number one, he says, be quick to hear. This is a call to listen. We could probably spend all a uh, whole sermon just on these three verses. Uh, be quick to hear. We could just spend it on each one of these, in fact. But we won't do that this morning. But simply to say, James is saying that God wants us to listen. Be quick to listen. Uh, there's a saying that goes that God gave us two ears and only one mouth so that we would listen twice as much as we speak, right? I need to take that into advice too. So many of our conflicts can be avoided if we just simply truly sought to listen to others. Oh, man. And this is particularly true in marriage, you know. Uh, but it truly applies in all conflicts. So many times we're listening because we want to, you know, hear so how we can give them an answer, how we can be right. We don't want to listen to understand what our spouse, our, our children, our, our parents, our boss really wants to convey. Proverbs twelve fifteen, the, the book of Proverbs has so much wisdom with regards to communication. It says, Solomon writes, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Well, there's a second command that James gives, and that's be slow to speak. It's called to think before we speak. Careless words spoken often lead to further conflict, right? And once spoken, they cannot be taken back. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Many of us all, and we understand this, this command. We, how many times have we put our foot in our mouth? How we hurt people, maybe even unintentionally, well-meaning, speaking well-meaningly, but still we, we can hurt people because of the words that we, we speak without thinking. And then thirdly, James encourages, exhorts his readers to be slow to anger. It's a call to self-control. Careless words will often then give rise to careless actions and anger that arises. And in anger, then we tend to say those things that we regret and then do those things that we regret and make matters much worse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, But now you also put them all aside, wrath, 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. We need to put away the, the anger that so rarely comes up when we are in conflicts. So many times it's easy to get angry, to let our emotions get away from us. Uh, emotions are forgiven from God and, and intended for a good. All emotions are, are not, they're neutral in a sense. They, they drive us to a smart response. But anger, if, lot, if unchecked, can lead to further sin. What we see here in the latter part of Colossians 3.8, but in the whole, this uh, whole instruction of James from being quick to hear to being slow to speak to being slow to anger is that an uncontrolled tongue often goes in hand in hand with uncontrolled anger. That when we don't control our tongue and, and we don't listen, it leads inevitably to conflict, to anger, to difficult situations. Now, while Scripture does recognize the possibility of righteous anger, uh, Ephesians 4.26, be angry, but yet do not sin. So there seems to be an opportunity. God himself has anger. He's wrath, the wrath of God we talk about, and yet God is holy. So it is, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But with sinful man, righteous anger is very short. And it's, you know, it might initially be righteous anger, but generally it, we allow it to go on for a while. It becomes unrighteous anger. But James is speaking here in our passage of a very proverbial truth about man's anger and why we want to be slow to anger. And he gives this instruction, his explanation, and why he gives these three commands to be slow to speak, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. Because for, he says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And this is not talking about salvation. It's not talking about justification where we arrive at the righteousness of God. This, don't read Paul into this. This is James. James is writing way before Paul is writing here. James writes with a Jewish kind of a background. He's writing to Jewish believers. And you think about the word righteousness, and often in the Old Testament, it defines the righteous way of life, a righteous way of living. It's righteousness. It's the outward flow of our lives. That anger hinders us from living a righteous life that God desires of us. That's what anger does. When you're always angry, you're generally not a person who lives in a way that pleases the Lord. That's not how God wants you to live. He didn't say, I, Jesus didn't say, I came so that you would have my anger and have it in full. No, he says that you would have my joy. You can't be joyful and angry. I'm joyfully angry right now. That doesn't work. God desires us to have joy, not anger. And so uh, anger has, just has a way of affecting our lives. Anger uh, hinders us not from living a righteous life, but particularly anger hinders our prayers, according to 1 Timothy 2.8. Anger gives the devil an opportunity to tempt us, according to Ephesians 4.27. And anger leads to other sins, as Proverbs 29.22 speaks. An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Anger does not help when in the midst of interpersonal conflict. Uh, if you find yourself getting angry, and sometimes I find myself angry, I realize that that's when I need to walk away because I'm not able to, you know, unless I'm able to control my anger, this, not, this, this communication, this conversation is not going to be productive. But sometimes we need to walk away and say, hey, I'm, I'm just too angry. I can't talk about this right now. Can we, I can't talk with you about this later. And it should be okay. Hopefully we can understand that. It's a practical thing that we do, even in our marriage relationships. So not only must we be quick to listen then, slow to speak and slow to anger. For these things do not achieve the righteousness of God. But instead of, and so instead of being controlled by our anger, we want to be controlled by God's word. What we need is God's word working through us, not allowing our, emotion, our emotions to, and of anger to control us, but God's word to control us. So verse 21 tells us how. How then are we to accept this word, receive this word that we need in the midst of interpersonal conflicts? Verse 21 tells us, therefore, so here's the therefore, since the, since the anger man does not achieve the righteousness of God, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And that's not only able to save your souls in a sense of, uh, not really in a sense of 
uh, justification, but in a sense of sanctification and ultimate glorification. But three things that we need to do here and how we receive the word. First of all, we need to put off sin. Throughout the scripture, we see instructions to put off sin, like dirty clothes, put it off, take it off. But, you know, you don't want to walk around naked, so you always got to put on something. There's always a putting off and putting on. But first of all, James says, put off all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. So that's just simply putting off sin. Sin hinders us from receiving God's word. Secondly, we need to receive the word of God with humility. We need to come to God's word recognizing who we are before the Lord, that we don't think we're proud, that we, are, we don't need God's word or think we're something when we're not. We are all men and women who need God's grace through his word. We can't come to God's word thinking that I have no sin or no need. You know, if you ever come here, we, when we come and hear God's word, we should always come as needy people. I oftentimes will reflect as I come to the worship, and I hope you do too, and that when we come here, we say that we're sinners in need of God's grace. We've been saved by God's grace, true. But I need to be sanctified by God's grace. I need God's word. I need more of his word for my life because I'm a needy man. I cannot grow apart from his word. I need to abide in that word for his word is that which works in me. Pride often comes to the Bible looking for what it might say to others. Oh, good. That's, that's for sister so-and-so. I hope she's hearing this. Uh, you know, I... So we, we, in humility, we, we need to come to God's word and say, this is what I need. This is what I need. Thirdly, then, putting, after putting off sin and having an attitude of humility, we then receive the word. Receive the implanted word. Notice this phrase, implanted. Sometimes we kind of just gloss over this, but it's significant. This word is implanted in us. James is writing to believers. So he's reminding us, and so it's very likely that James is thinking about how God's word is already implanted in us. This probably comes from the new promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Remember in Jeremiah 31? Oh, well, if you don't, that's okay. The Israelites for a long time just could not, even though they had God's law, they could never obey it. They, had not, they didn't have the ability to. So in the new covenant promise, God says to them that, I will put my law within them. It would no longer be external, but he would put his word in them. And on their heart, I will write it, God says. He will put God's word in their hearts. He will implant it there so that they will be able to obey God's word. And as believers in Christ, all of us have had God's word implanted in us. All of us have had God's word, the gospel, the truths of God, and it's just implanted, written on our hearts so that we may be able to obey it. God has given all of us new hearts. God has regenerated us so that we are able to obey his commands. And so the command here to receive this implanted word is an instruction to then allow this word that is implanted in us to allow God's word to influence us in all parts of our lives, to welcome it. We are to pay attention to this word. Many times we know many thoughts, it's like having, we know the truths and we receive much of the truth, but it's a matter of paying attention to live according to it. This word is able to save our souls. It's able to sanctify you. It's able to bring you to ultimate glorification. It's God's word that enables us to live the righteous lives that God desires. That's why we need to abide in his word, as J- Jesus puts in our uh, in our. Um, pastoral prayer this morning. Men and women of faith are men and women who accept the word of God that's already implanted. We allow it to work in our lives. We receive it. We welcome it into our lives. But it's not enough to just accept God's word. The believer in Christ also abides in God's word. We abide in the word. Verse 22 to 25, we see James continue, kind of... <coughs> Getting to the, the heart of this, path, of this uh, section where we think about, he exhorts us to be doers of the word. And that's what we find here in verse 22, the exhortation. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's pretty straightforward, I think. James just simply says, be a doer of the word, not a, merely a, a hearer of the word. It's easy to hear and not do. It's like, you know, 
Um, you know, hey, Henry, go uh, empty the litter. I say, yeah, okay. And then, you know, next day it's not emptied. Uh, that's a hearer of the word but not a doer, okay. That's what it means. That's, you hear something, say, yeah, I'm, okay, that's, I agree, but then you don't do it. Prove yourself. Be, is the command is actually just be. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. And this is one of the great dangers, I think, as being a part of a, a Bible church. Uh, this is a danger for all of us. You know, <clears throat> you're not part of a Bible church, church that doesn't teach the word. Uh, this is not a temptation. You're not even, they don't even hear the word, uh, much less do the word. But for those of us that hear the word weekly, week in, week out, this is our temptation. That we can, we here as a church, we praise God that we strive to be biblical in our teaching and preaching throughout all the ministries of the church. Our aim from the pulpits and in the classrooms is always to explain God's word and not our word. And it is good that we seek to hear, seek to understand God's word. It's a good thing. But oftentimes, sometimes, we think that hearing God's word is enough. That I, when I've heard God's word, I've come and I've sat here, I've heard God's word, and I've done my duty before the Lord. But that is not enough. James says, don't be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. We fall into the trap of just coming here week in, week out, hearing God's word, not doing it. And James says, we, we delude ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We think that God is pleased with our worship. God is not pleased with our worship if we come here and we hear him, what he says to us, and then we walk out and we don't do it. Our, our, our worship is not, would not be pleasing. It's, it's worthless before him. But God is pleased when we listen to his word, and we, then we go out and we do God's word. Now, saying this, after saying this, we must remember that none of us obey God's word perfectly. We don't get too down and say, oh, man, I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, you, I mean, you are. So am I. Okay. We do not always obey God's word perfectly, but we all should desire. We all should strive to obey God's word as God brings that word to our mind. And even as we meditate upon God's word, asking for strength where we, where we lack strength, asking for courage where we, we are fearful of obeying. James goes on to illustrate the foolishness of being a hearer of the word and not uh, a doer in verse 23 to 24. He says, he writes, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Oh, this is a great illustration. James is full of, actually, James is full of great illustrations. And he's so, he writes some great pictures that we all get. And all of us get this one because all of you, okay, maybe a few of you didn't. But all of you probably looked in the mirror this morning, right? Y'all looked in the mirror this morning? Would you confess that? Oh, I didn't look in the mirror. <laughs> we all look in the mirror. And you look in the mirror this morning so you want to see what you look like. You, know, you slept, you know, 10, 11 hours on your, well, okay, 5 hours, 6 hours, 8 hours, 10, 11. Uh, that's a wish. You slide and say, you don't look good. When you look in the mirror, you don't look good. And so you want to do something about it, right? You want to get yourself good. But look, so um, like a mirror, God's word is intends for us to, to, look, uh, to look at ourselves, to see who we are, what we look like. But one who is a hearer, not a doer, is a guy who, or a woman who looks in the mirror and then, Walks away and just forgets what they look like. They don't do anything about it. Uh, one illustration I read in a commentary is a, I like to share with you. It's just, it's just this point. It's like a man who wakes up one morning uh, uh, and he takes a look at himself in the mirror and he sees, oh, my hair's a mess. I'm, oh man, my, you know, and uh, you know, he's 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 got wrinkles all over his face and he's like, he's, uh, he doesn't look so good. He says, and his yeah, his stubble's kind of growing out. But then he realizes, oh, man, I'm late for work. So he runs off to work, and he gets to work, and he starts getting up going about his work. And then his boss comes in. His boss comes up to, you, to him and says, um, sir, or you, or not, you don't have to call him sir, your boss. Say, don't you have a mirror in your house? And the guy says, oh, yes, I have a mirror in my house. In fact, I looked at it this morning when I woke up. And so the boss says, well, don't you have a comb and razor? Uh, the man says, well, yeah, I've got a good comb. I've got one of those fancy ones that my wife bought me, as well as i got that razor, the electric one that works really well. So the boss then looks at him sternly, looks in his eye, says, 
Next time you look in the mirror, do something about it. <laughs> That's my advice to you. That's what James is doing for us here. James is saying to us, the next time you look into the word of God, do something about it. Do something about it. That's James' advice to us. That's God's advice to us. When we hear God's word, we are to do something about it. Maybe it's an attitude that needs to be changed, true. But that attitude is going to reflect an action in how we live our lives. And, and it should affect us. It should manifest in our lives. It makes us different. James then goes on to explain the key to doing God's word in verse 25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The word of God here is called the perfect law, the law of liberty, and that the law sets us free from our slavery to sin. It's the perfect law, and that it's perfect for us. It's perfect for every situation. There's no error in it. It's always true. It's, it's, it's effective for every situation that we face. The believer in Christ who looks intently at the perfect law, who looks intently at God's word, is, to be a, is one who does the word of God. And this word, to look intently, means to, to stoop down to look. It's kind of like, you know, you kind of look closer, to, you know, to see closely. Uh, many of you have uh, see more of you are doing that right now. You got your cell phones out or your pads. You got to look closely, right? Not just because it's small, but you, you want to understand it. We have to do that. We kind of look, stoop down to look closely at it take a closer look. That's this word look intently means. And that's how we ought to look at God's word. You know, it's like hold it far. Well, you're farsighted. Go ahead. But, you know what I mean? We need to look more intently, closely at it, to examine it, to, to, to make observations of the text. But then it's not enough just to look intently. Notice here the next phrase, to look, one who looks intently, not because of the law of liberty and abides by it. There's another word here. Not to, you just look at it, but you abide by this word. To abide is this word that means to remain or to stay. Literally just means to stay by the side of someone. But it comes figuratively to mean to continue in something. To continue to, to remain close to something. See, a doer of the word is someone who looks intently at God's word as he continues to do so. It's not just like we come to Bible study on Friday nights and we just look intently at the word then we go home on Saturday and we just like, we don't, we don't even think about the word on Saturday. We just go do our own thing. We don't even live our lives as if the word matters in our life. And then on Sunday, oh, we come in, we, you know, for an hour or three. We look intently at the word. And then, oh, man, Sunday afternoon, woo, all right, go 49ers or go Hawks, uh, whatever your team is. And like, what? I've forgotten about the word, you know, completely. And then Monday through Friday, we Monday through Friday, we just think about ourselves. We don't think about the word. It's not about we need to look intently at God's word, but we need to continue to do so. To constantly think about how God's word lives out. And it is so easy to not think about God's word. Right? There's so many things in our world that we think about. We need to abide by God's word. John chapter 15. Verse 7 to 8, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, the key to bearing much fruit, and this whole concept of bearing fruit, doing God's will, to bear much fruit, is all dependent upon abiding in Christ and abiding in him and abiding in his word and abiding in his love, remaining close to him and his words. Let his words be close to us, his, him be close to us, so that then we can prayerfully ask, depending upon him, and accomplish it. It's not about, like, getting a free ticket for whatever you want. This is about doing God's will, bearing fruit. It's like about the story that was told about uh, the hymn writer who prayed for the whole household and received the household's response in the word, to this who responded in saving faith. My father is glorified this, by that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. This is a very important point, that if we are people of faith, as we claim to be, then we will be men and women who not only accept God's word, receive God's word, but we'll be men and women who look intently to God's word and abide in it, remain in it. And as we abide in God's word, it will result in 
fruits that bear in our lives. And that will show and be a testimony to the world that we are his disciples. It doesn't make us his disciples to do God's word, to do God's, to bear much fruit. But it's the fact that we are disciples, that if we have a faith in Christ, that it will manifest in the, these, in, in the abiding of his word, the obedience of, to his word, and the bearing of much fruit. See, the believer in Christ then responds to God's word by accepting it, by abiding in it, and thirdly, by acting upon it, by acting upon the word. And we see this in verse 26 to 27. James, in these last few verses, gives practical instructions to his readers on how particularly they can be a doer of the word. Verse 26, 27 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The key word in this passage, if we look at these two verses, is this word religious, religion. It's a great observation. You just look at this passage and say, oh, religious is mentioned one, religion is mentioned twice. That's a key word. In fact, if we, even if we consistently look for this word in, in the New Testament, we would not find it. It's rare. So the fact that it appears essentially three times in these two verses tells us that this is a key idea. This idea about what is religious, what is, being, uh, what is a religion. Now, much like our English use of this word religion, the Greek word also has a similar, context, similar meaning. And that religion is simply one's worship of God, uh, depending upon who, what religion they follow. But one's worship of God, particularly, though, as it manifests externally. Your religion is what it is the, your faith in God, your worship of God that manifests in the practice of your life, in your, the attendance of services, or in what you do, in the good deeds that you do. That is religion. As Christians, though, we've probably all heard the saying that Christianity is not a religion, right? We've heard that, but it's a relationship. And I get that. We get that, and that's true. It's true in the sense that the heart of Christianity is not about the external acts of worship. It's not these external things that we do that make us a Christian. But it's about having a right relationship with Christ. That's what makes us a Christian, that we have a right relationship with Christ. That we recognize who Jesus Christ is, that he is the son of God who came and died on the cross for our sins. That he died in place of us and bore our sins so that we who believe in Christ, who put our trust in Christ, receive his righteousness. That God looks at us, doesn't see our sin, but through because of our faith in Christ, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. That's having a, that is the heart of our religion, a right relationship with Jesus Christ, that we know him as our Savior and Lord. But nevertheless, Christianity, according to James here, is a religion that it does manifest externally. And James's point here, as he uses this word religion and religious, is that external acts of worship still matter. They matter as reflections of, one, of one's worship of God, but more importantly, it matters as a reflection of the work of Christ in our life. Then when we do, when, when we say we have faith in Christ, and when we manifest in our lives by our outward, by actions and obedience to word, it, it tells others that Christ is at work in us. It shows others that we are his disciples. That, yes, Jesus is in us because we do deeds, we do things that reflect Jesus. We look like we are Jesus' picture to the world. Jesus is seen to the world in two ways. Through his word and through his body. Through you and me. So James here gives three specific actions that characterize the one who professes to be religious. The one who professes to be a worshiper of Christ. Keeping reign of the tongue, keeping watch of the helpless, and keeping away from the worldliness. We're going to look at each of these three. And certainly these are not the only actions of worshipers of God. But James has chosen these because they particularly reflect actions that reveal the work of Christ in our lives. Christ empowers us to obey his word. Number one, he says, James encourages us to keep reign of your tongue. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue... But deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. 
He says in verse 26, James in chapter 3 will elaborate more on this tongue and how it is like a fire, how it's uncontrollable, how no one, basically there in verse 8 he even writes, no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue, but here it says, you need to bridle your tongue. How's that possible? Because on and out of our strength, no one can tame the tongue. We need Christ to bridle the tongue. We need Christ in us to have the self the fruit of the spirits, self-control being one of them, so that we might control our tongue. So we might not be able to hold our tongue when needed. That we would not just speak whatever comes out of our mouth whenever we feel like it. One of the Proverbs has much to say about the control of the tongue. But one great verse is Ephesians, in the New Testament particularly, is Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Before you speak, ask yourself, is this edifying? Is this timely? Is this gracious? The what, the when, the how of communication. A person, a believer in Christ who proclaims to be religious, who claims to have faith in Christ and God, but yet does not control their tongue, is a, a person who is basically has a reputation of always insulting others, slandering others, maligning others, who always is out, has outbursts of anger, who speaks unwholesome words. If that, if that is a person who is religious, and we know many people who do this. In fact, James Galena talks about with one, with our word or mouth, we, we bless the Lord, and then in the next moment, we're cursing our fellow man. He says that, that according to James, that makes your faith worthless. It's a worthless faith. It's, not, it's, it's vain. You might say you have faith, but it ain't worth anything. Why even bother? Secondly, James gives us a second practical action upon God's word that reflects Christ in us. And he says, keep watch over the helpless. Keep watch over the helpless. Uh, that is, uh, in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Christians are to watch over, to visit. And, you know, visit just doesn't mean that it's knock on the door and you say, hi, how are you doing? Oh, I visited you. Good to see you. But to visit them in the middle of need and to provide some help, to offer comfort, to offer what they need. Orphans and widows in the days of the New Testament and even the days of today are often the most helpless people in society. Orphans have no parents to take care of them. Widows in their days did not have a husband, did not have a family to provide for them. They were left with little to no means and were easily taken advantage of by evil men. Even as I say that, I just realize, just thinking that even today there are still many orphans and widows who are easily taken advantage by evil men. But God himself cares for the helpless. Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers, that is, the aliens, those who come from different lands, the immigrants. He supports the fatherless and the widows, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. God's heart has always been a heart that is concerned for the helpless. God has compassion upon the helpless. He doesn't take advantage of the helpless. God's heart is like this. Our heart ought to be like this. Christ, it is Christ, Christ in fact came because God has a heart for the helpless. The orphans and widows and, and the strangers, they're just a, they are a visible earthly picture of all of us, of how all of us are sinners. All of us like like the orphans, like the ones, have no means of helping ourselves to be saved from our sin. But God sent his son then to come and to provide for what we need in our distress. And so that's why God has a heart for the orphans and widows and those who are helpless. And if God and it reflects in his, his, our salvation, and therefore, if we who believe in Christ, we should show the same. We should have a care for the helpless. We should have a care for the orphans and the widows those who are being taken advantage of by evil men in this world. 
believers in Christ need to keep watch over their health care. And we don't need to go, I mean, you don't need to even go out to the world and say, oh, let me go find some orphans and widows. You can start right here in the church. Even in this church, we, you probably know people who are helpless right now. Widows, orphans, people who don't have parents, a father maybe. You may know, if come alongside, especially older men. This is something I, I, I've been thinking about myself. Do I come alongside younger men who don't have fathers? And maybe they do have a dad, but they don't have Christian dads. And I'm a Christian dad. Will I come alongside as an older brother in the Lord to be a spiritual dad to this younger man? To point him the way, to show him how he lives, not just a, a, a life, but live a Christian life. And then we can care for those who are old, elderly, those who are sick, those who are homebound. This, uh, with, there are many who need our care. And, but so does the world as well. Keep, and we can do that as well. Keep watch over the helpless. Thirdly, though, the third way that we manifest, we act upon God's word that reflects Christ in us is that we keep away from worldliness. Keep away from worldliness. Uh, James writes in the verse, end of verse 27, not only pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, but also and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To keep oneself unstained. To live, to live a life that is not stained, that is not characterized by moral filth. The world is a, is a term that reveals basically the, the sinful, un, the fallen world uh, that, is against, that, opposed, that is against God's reign and God's rule. James, uh, later on in chapter 4, verse 4, encourages, he writes about, the, warns us against worldliness. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility against God? To love the things of the world, to love the sinful things of the world. It's not only to, it's the sinful things of the world, but to have the sinful world views, the sinful thoughts of the world. It's to be at enmity with God. As those who live on this, in this fallen world, we must be diligent to identify and avoid those thoughts and deeds that are contrary to God's word. Even when it is common among men. Early, if this is even just similar to what James wrote in early in verse 21, to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. We meant Christians manifest Christ in us when we put away sin in our lives. It's, it is a contradiction to the world, and the world, even the world knows it. How can you be a Christian and then you continue on in sin? That makes no sense. Here we are getting drunk. Yeah, we want you to do it with us, but yet, hey, Aren't you a Christian? Why are you getting drunk with us? But yeah, come on, man. It's fun. That's, they like it when we do that. But it is so contrary to one who believes in Christ. The world wants Christians to be like them. And though sometimes, sadly, Christians want to be like the world, but we are called to be unlike the world, to not be characterized by its sinful deeds and actions and thoughts. And it takes great wisdom because we live in the world. We don't know, is this sinful? A lot of times we're looking at this, is this action sinful? Watching this movie sinful? But listening to this particular movie, is that sinful? And that's something you, with wisdom, decide before you, between you and God. Is to, to do this, you know, to go to this place, is that sinful? To hold to this particular political party, is that sinful? Maybe a lot, much of this is wisdom applied. But the construction is still the same, to keep away from worldliness, to keep away from sinful actions and thoughts. Because that, those things are not contrary, are contrary to, the, to having Christ in us. So we, as believers in Christ, are men and women, include, who accept the word, abide in the word, and we act upon the word. As James puts it, we need to be doers of the word. So let's not be merely hearers of the word but doers of it. I was in with a, I uh, came across this poem in, uh, in my study, and I thought, oh, that was a good study, great conclusion. It's kind of just in, pretty int- intriguing. But it gets to the point of, of uh, our text this morning. It's an uh, it's unknown author, but written as if from the words of uh, our Savior. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk not. You call me life 
and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the very fact that we are all gathered here this morning is because we are men and women who profess faith in Christ. We are religious people, rightly, who have responded to Jesus Christ and confessed him and believed upon him as our Savior and Lord. But Father, as religious people, we, we want our faith to be more than just being something that we say we believe in, more than something that is just inside our, our, our minds and our hearts. But as your word exhorts us, we want to be men and women who reveal in our life, in our actions, Christ in us. Father, help us to be men and women who res- have respond rightly to your word, that we not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers, that we would accept your word, Look intently in your word and abide in your word and act upon your word. Oh, Lord, there's so much of your word that we have come to understand in our lives. And there's probably a good number of areas in our life that we have not yet acted upon in obedience. Father, show us, convict us in those areas. And that will cause us, Lord, to... Not just try harder, but first to pray harder, to cry out more to you, and to ask, Lord, that you would manifest more of Christ in our life, that we would ask of you, Father, for the grace to obey, that you would ask of you for the courage to take those steps of obedience that your word tells us, even when it may cause us embarrassment in our world, when the world finds out that we're Christians, that we would not be ashamed but that we would be men and women who are committed to receiving your word, abiding in your word, and acting upon your word. Because we have already received that word in us, that you've implanted in our hearts, you've written it upon our hearts, so that we might obey. Lord, guard us, warn us, convict us, that we would not have a religion that is worthless, that we would not be like a fool who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets. We have looked upon the word this morning. We go out and do something about it because your word reflects Christ and Christ in us. Lord, with this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.